Hi, Trevor Barone here, president of CAMP, Community Association Advisors for Management Professionals. Living in an association can come with many benefits like increased home value and shared costs, but it does come with challenges. Our volunteer board, advisors, and vendors service the community association industry throughout Central Florida, and we want to reduce the challenges managers, community association managers, licensed managers, face every day through access to tools, knowledge, and contacts who can get the job done right. Together, we can help raise the bar for our homeowners. Now, the primary way that we accomplish this is through our monthly events. June's camp program was presented by me on insurance negotiation. It gave me an opportunity to answer questions I receive regularly on what are the inner workings of this annual renewal process, what should we expect from our agent, and what is the best way that the board can go about this every year to make sure they're receiving the best possible pricing, the best possible terms, and to make sure that they're protected. If you still have questions, don't hesitate to contact me directly uh, campcontact at gmail.com. Enjoy. Thank you for coming today uh, to Bonefish. Uh, today it's on insurance negotiation. Don't you know insurance is really serious? That's why I wanted to use this picture. Uh, somebody took this uh, during the marketing process, and I'm going to kind of go through what that timeline looks like. And uh, as you know, I'm, I'm very serious. So um, I wanted to introduce our panelists. As you can see, everyone asked me, well, where's Sonia? Well, why don't you ask, well, how you been, Trevor? Why is it always about Sonia? So she's not here. She's my hype man usually. She's the one getting everybody going, but she's not here today. So I want to introduce uh, Todd and Bonnie. Todd is from Planet In-House. Uh, they do aerial thermography, and that's going to kind of go into the process of uh, insurance negotiation, that data that's going to be collected. And then Bonnie, I think everybody here knows Bonnie, right? She's the premier uh, appraiser in the county. We're going to talk about the replacement cost appraisal, how that fits into the submission process, and then ultimately uh, how we negotiate with carriers. So today's really simple. Everybody got their food order in first. Okay. Uh, it's really simple. To maximize the negotiation power, uh, we want to have leverage, right? We want to be negotiating from a point of leverage. And when it comes to insurance, it, a lot of that has to do with information, data. You know, the more you know, the more power you have. And, uh, and that's really the mission of CAMP, first of all. Uh, but that's a big point that we're going to continue to hit on, how to collect that data, how it's going to be used, and ultimately how the association can benefit from it. Um, and that's what you know, these individuals do as well. Um, oh, computers. Okay. A big part of your, uh, your job is really leaning on your advisors, right? Nobody can know everything, although you have to know a lot about a lot of things to be a community association manager. Um, although a lot of people call me a know-it-all, so maybe you can know everything. I don't know. Um, but uh, leaning on your trusted advisors, developing partners that aren't just order takers is a big part of this process. Uh, you want to be proactive. You know, education is most expensive when you're finding out through a disaster or when something went wrong. That's an expensive type of uh, education. We want to be ahead of that game. Um, and insurance is one of those things that a lot of people have some perspective on because they have to buy it for themselves. Uh, and they think of the state farm model or the all state where it's a captive situation. So today's going to talk a little bit about that independent process. And then more specifically for associations is specialized brokerages in what they 
you know, what part they play in the process of ultimately coming up with the terms, the rates, the premiums, and kind of demystifying that so it's not quite as scary uh, as it looks. So we've got a little outline here. Uh, we talk a little bit about the insurance audit. A big term that I'm going to reference is the annualized cost of risk. We have an insurance premium. We have our budget. We budget for insurance. But what we really want to be thinking about is what is the annualized cost of risk. So these are items you could be self-insuring for. They could be deductibles. They're all the things that fall into the unknown and the uncertain that we can't necessarily budget for, but we need to plan and prepare for them. Talk a little bit about an exposure analysis. Everyone loves to use the term apples to apples. You know, what if the apples are rotten? How does that make any sense? Talk a little bit about that. Uh, the renewal process, timeline, the decisions the board has to make or, or the manager uh, who may be involved in that. The contractual liability, we might make it into a little bit. And then I'm going to be throwing a lot of stuff over to these guys that's going to be more specific on the data collection that goes into the submission to the carriers. Now, we have that line item in our budget. It's called insurance. And hopefully, boards are conservative when they're estimating that. They're always asking me every two or three months, Trevor, where are we headed? Where are things going? Or what's it going to be for next year? I give you that budget newsletter, um, and I try to have factors in there. So we know, you know possibly what we paid last year. Uh, what are we going to pay next year based on what, what aspects? Are we going to need a new appraisal? How that might affect the marketplace? I'm going to let Bonnie talk about uh, what goes into a replacement cost appraisal, what the difference is between replacement cost and market value. Just give us a little overview on that. And then maybe where things are headed with the cost of labor and the cost of goods so everyone can be prepared for that. Had an association, um, it was a townhome, so they didn't follow 718, but they insured like a condo. They didn't have uh, an updated appraisal for eight years. They got an updated appraisal, it went up over 25%. So as much as the rates stayed the same on the insurance or maybe even went down, the basis, which was that replacement cost, went way up. And that's a big part. So we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, and the annualized cost of risk is much broader than the subset of risk that you are paying to transfer to a carrier. That's a premium, right? You're paying a premium to transfer this defined amount of risk. And hopefully you know what that is. You may not. Uh, depending on how detailed your proposal process is, you know, diving into the actual policies, um, and, and that's kind of where we are already headed. So um, I think this, is, this image is kind of a throwback. Not a lot of associations or managers keep big, huge binders for the insurance book. Uh, you know, why have these fill in your office? You're probably not reading them anyway. We get a digital version, right? But a uh, big part of what I do is I want to know what's in there. And there's a lot more than just what's in the policy. So uh, this is one that I put together for an association I started working with. And I'm you know, reading it in detail, because not every insurance policy is the same. Uh, and the majority of the insurance policy is exclusions. But it's not just the insurance policies. Um, there's going to be endorsements. There's going to be deductibles. There's going to be limits and exclusions. That's all in the policy contract and framework. Uh, there's going to be credits. There's going to be what is the rate, and how does that compare to similar associations and how do the protective safeguards work. But outside of that, the schedule of property put together um, by an appraiser, um, replacement cost valuation, construction type and updates, projects and maintenance, um, mitigation reports, engineering reports, uh, claims information. And then ultimately, what I'm going to be putting in that process is the governing documents, what do the association grounds look like, what is the activity and operations 
for the association as well because those all create exposures. Um, so I think this is a good time to uh, kind of talk a little bit about what goes into that replacement cost and um, just some factors we can work with there. So Bonnie, um, you know, we know statute for uh, condo 718 every 36 months, you need a new valuation that's gonna be the basis for the property insurance. Tell us a little bit about what that is and, and how you make that happen. The bottom of your handouts has this, uh, these tables right here. Uh, I put these tables in every appraisal and I try to get them out to the client before I begin the appraisal process. Condominiums are governed by 718 and they're easy because this table covers it and it doesn't include anything that should not be in there. Uh, homeowners associations, not so much so. And, uh, and so I send these out and make sure that the clients are clear about which components are to be included and which are not. Um, and so you see the check marks of what is included under the master policy. On the second page of that is the flood valuation and all of the check marks are in the one column, responsibility of the association. And since uh, a picture is worth a thousand words, I get asked a lot about, well, what about the pipes? What about the faucets? What about the light fixtures? And so these pictures will demonstrate what's included in the hazard coverage versus what's included in the flood coverage. So on the first page at the top, you see just drywall and you can see blanks for where the light fixtures and the, and the switches are going to go. And that's what's covered. On the second photo, you see baseboards, paint, ceiling, fans, and all of that. That would be covered under the flood insurance. And so I've taken a couple of additional rooms, the kitchen, uh, cabinets and countertops are included. Built-in appliances are included. And in the uh, bathroom, I've indicated that the tub, the sink, and the throne would be included, along with uh, wall treatments, paint or wall wallpaper, and the flooring and all of that. And those are the components that, that go into the insurance appraisal. Um, do you want to talk about the trends? You mentioned that. Yeah, I would love for you to let us know in the last. There was the. Uh, <laughs> I've been doing updates, uh, and thank you guys very much for sending me the business and keeping the updates going. It's uh, it's been very fun, but I've been updating some that haven't been quite on schedule. It's a little more than three years since their last appraisal, and there's some major sticker shock going on, to the point where I did some research online to find out why in the world are prices replacement costs going up so high so fast. Um, and I looked at the cost of lumber and concrete and steel and all of those things that go into co the cost of a building. And the single most important factor in the increased cost is the labor market. And that has a lot to do with the storms that we just went through and there's that supply and demand, uh, not enough laborers and too much labor to be done. And, and there are some political reasons for that as well. The labor pool is actually shrinking and the cost of labor is going up. Nevertheless, uh, I've, I try to dig in and figure out now, here's a, here's a printout from my cost estimating software that says this building should cost $110 per square foot to rebuild. So I get on the phone with my contractors 
In fact, in one case, it was the one that built this particular building. And I said, really? And he said, no, <laughs> I, could, I could build the, the whole thing, including furnish it for that kind of money. And so I, I need to get into exactly what kind of building there are. The frame construction has not gone up very much at all. But the concrete buildings, the ISO 6, fire resistive, have gone through the roof. And so I'm looking at each one very carefully to see how I can mitigate those increases, um, minimize them, but not expose your clients, uh, not have it understated by any measure at all. So that's been, that's been the fun I've been having. Um, any questions about that? The, I'm sorry, the what? The what panels? Electrical panels. Thank you. The electrical panels would be included in the hazard coverage, uh, all the wiring, and so be, because the panel is the actual, you know, where the output from the wiring, the panel is included. Uh, when you get out to the walls and the ceilings, the light fixtures, the switches on and off, those are not. Uh, they don't leave the wires hanging out of the walls anymore, but that's ex uh, essentially what you would get covered, what you would be covered for with your hazard coverage. Yeah. Yes? Shower pan. That would be part of the building. And that, the shower pan would be part of yes. the plumbing stud out. It, yes, it is. And that's in the picture here you can see shower pan. <laughs> I, I looked far. I, I looked at several of these to make sure that that would be included, and uh, and sure enough, that is. And it's because it's actually part of the subfloor. Thank you. Yep. Okay. Thank you. Very good. Thank you, Bonnie. That's obviously a big driver in all of this. And there's a lot of questions that come in, and, and the how the appraisals put together, how they educate the board or the management, um, is a really big process for us. And it, helps us do what we can do uh, to, to put the submission together. So let's go ahead and talk a little bit about that. Um, creating a plan and solving um, the individual challenges each association has concerning their unique exposures. So uh, obviously the property itself, that's gonna be unique at every single property. The operations, do we have a playground? Do we have pools? Do we have spas? What is the roof type uh, for that particular building? Is, is a problem to solve, and it's not a once a year thing. And I know that's kind of what some of this is gonna be focused on and probably what a lot of people thought when they saw the title of this uh, program. It's not just the once a year renewal, one, one meeting insurance negotiation. It's yes, what goes into that from our perspective, so it's easier to explain and, and discuss, but it's really uh, what is the cost of risk long-term and, and what are the pieces that are gonna to fit together year round. So. Um, what is the annual way that this is put together? Uh, and this is just something that, that I do and that our team does. You know, we wanna be doing a risk assessment. It's all about communication year round, providing information, and a lot of it's the same stuff. You hear me say the same 10 things, five things, you know, till, you're, till you go insane. But uh, there's always new board members, there's always information to provide. Um, we wanna be year round providing options and applying endorsements. It's not just about that once a year meeting. There are things that change year round and we need to be proactive with that. Managing and resolving claims, obviously we've had a, a nice fun experience with that past two years. Uh, extra, extra claims, not just a liability, not just a, an event every now and then or some lightning, two big hurricanes. Um, 
and then wind forecasting, law changes, price modeling, budget assistance, and then the big driver on that was the appraisal, and um, and, and that's a little bit of the year-long process. So um, uh, what I view as community association specialists, uh, insurance agents, uh, they should really be the association's Sherpa. You know, the Sherpa is a group of people that guides explorers, you know, expeditioners, adventurers uh, to climb mountains like Mount Everest. That's our job. You know, it's weathering the perils of commercial insurance and association insurance to help uh, solve all these problems. And um, Wikipedia defines them as elite mountaineers and experts in their local area. And that's what you need to do all the things that are required by 10, 15, 30 million dollar association. Um, so let's talk about that submission process and then I'm gonna bring Todd in a little bit and, and some of the data that can be provided by some of the tools that are out there now. There is, this is how you wanna view the independent insurance renewal process uh, as just kind of a map, as a roadway. We have a comprehensive submission. So that submission is that information that I spoke to a little bit, the wind mitigation, the appraisal, uh, the information that we're putting together, claims information, and we want to put that together in a way that we can sell it, we can market it to all the carriers and brokers that the agent has relationships with. So that picture you saw of me that's really serious, that's one of those meetings where we're talking about how are we going to market our clients so they can receive the best rates and terms. And uh, we come together three to six months out to do that. Um, so we're putting together a comprehensive submission. This is basically the agent, individual retail agent, you want them to be a large volume, platinum partner, specialize in that particular type of risk. And then they're gonna to go to all sorts of carriers. This is a small subset of carriers and that's just for basically one line of coverage. Every line of coverage, there's gonna be multiple carriers, multiple brokers that may be approached. So you see one of these lines that goes up to uh, a broker. So a broker is another layer and they have different relationships. They may be a specialist broker, specialty broker, for condos or catastrophe exposed property and they're going to go to a whole nother set of carriers and where the big frustration comes in is well once one agent talks to a carrier that carrier isn't going to talk isn't going to allow another agent to negotiate on the behalf of a given association the idea is these carriers and even these brokers they require the board to choose their trusted partner their agent so you don't want to view it as a lawn contract. You want to view it just like you view your attorney, just like you might view a real estate agent. You want to view it like your accountant. This is a trusted partner who's negotiating on your behalf and you're going to interview them. You're going to make sure you trust them. You're going to go through the process of what is their strategy to mitigate the costs of risk and uh, control any claims or, or manage them when they happen and then allow that partner to go out to market and let all these carriers compete against each other with the one central hub, which is that agent who should have been putting together a, a very detailed submission. So this is a little bit of a timeline. This is what we do. I'm not saying this is what everybody does, but um, literally start 180 days out. So six months after renewal, six months until that renewal or that policy is going to expire, uh, we want to be receiving project updates. We're going to have a little bit of a check in there. That's not always super formal, uh, but that's an idea. It was, we want to start really far out ahead. Um, that meeting, that black and white picture, 
is where we started about 150 days out, is actually meeting with a team to discuss changes in the marketplace and, uh, and pieces that need to be put together for the submission if possibly they're, they're not complete. Uh, the 125-day mark, uh, mark, which is uh, 125 days until that policy expires, until the next renewal, um, is where we're gonna actually be allowed to submit to these markets. Not all of them will allow you to submit six months in advance. You have to go 125 days. And uh, the difference of clearance on that, basically saying who is the agent of record, who's the first to approach a market, could be a matter of seconds. So you say, oh, we gotta get three agents involved. Well, the competition isn't at the agency level, it's at the carrier level. You get three agents involved, they're just gonna block each other and they may be blocked by seconds. And now you're just putting chance into it. You're not actually um, actively choosing who you want to be providing that plan and be proactively managing your risk. So that'll start at either the 125-day mark or the 90-day mark, depending on uh, the carrier. And uh, we'll start to receive confirmation of clearance, uh, you know, possible declinations if they don't like a certain construction type. Certain carriers don't want frame or they don't want certain things close to the water. And so we're starting to get a little data back from the first bit of data we provided to them, a little input. Um, and then we start to get into the, the race of the renewal timeline. Um, so before we jump into that, let's talk a little bit more specifically about the data that can go into that submission that starts 150, 125 days out. Um, we already, we already spoke about the appraisal. That's a good time to update an appraisal and kind of have that timeline in the schedule every 36 months. You could do it every year. Do you do it? Is it a little less expensive if they update it every year and you don't do a walk around? Not really. Okay. I mean, we can talk about that, but no, it's, okay. it's, it's the same. I go through the same motions pretty much. Okay. So, you know, that's sometimes a possibility. You have a large association. You don't want things to get out of line to wait for the requirement of 36 months. You could do it every possibly 12 months. Um, but there's other data. So the wind mitigations, if the roofs are new and it's a type of structure that could have changed as far as uh, a wood truss roof, um, those have new Florida building codes and they might require a new uh, wind mitigation. Uh, but you could have what the carriers view as an old roof. Oh, that's a 15, 20 year old roof. We don't wanna cover that. Well, that's not saying it's necessarily a bad roof, but you may need an engineering report. You may need additional data that isn't just a recycle from what you gave us the year before, what was provided the year before. So that's what I wanna talk into a little bit, let Todd kind of jump into what Planet In-House UAS Thermal does and, uh, and how you may wanna view the roofs a little bit differently. So Todd. Hello, and I'd like to thank Trevor for uh, having me here and you all for coming and giving me the opportunity to speak to you. Uh, I'm Todd Hillhouse, I'm the CEO of Planet In-House. Um, I've lived here in Brevard for 20 years. I, I worked for Harris Corporation for, I think, 16 of those years, and uh, I worked on one of their uh, IRAD drone programs before they had a drone program. So uh, it was a great company, and I still do a lot of work for them. But our company, Planted In-House, we work as uh, R&D pilots, and we, uh, we do consulting work for the energy, the gas, solar fields. Um, but, but I'm here to talk to you a little bit about one of our business units today, UAS Thermals. So UAS Thermals is a distributor for FLIR infrared camera systems. We also offer training, uh, thermography training, and, uh, and services for uh, aerial infrared scans. Uh, we mostly focus on low slope roofs. So I have a couple examples of reports, but um, 
one of the topics that Trevor keeps talking about is is, is data and um, and how important it is. I mean, obviously, we're all aware of the Facebook privacy issue and how they believe that Cambridge Analytica used data that we provided to sway user opinions to possibly, you know, uh, alter a, a, an election. So all that aside, I was at a drone conference last September, and the uh, Intel CEO said something that just stuck with me. He said... Data is the new oil, and he couldn't be more right because the the what you data can be used for good and data can be uh, used for bad. Um, but then he further went on to speak after he was showing their new system that would do a co- point cloud mesh. It was a, a new drone and an algorithm and software that they built that would measure the buildings. And if it was missing a screw, it, it, used a, it used an artificial intelligence that said, hey, there's four here, but only three here. There should be one there. And it would flag it automatically, autonomous. No one's flying it. Um, so he went on to say, if data's the new oil, then drones are the new wellhead. And, it, and it's really true because uh, uh, John, uh, uh, one of my colleagues and I, were working with the Marine uh, Resources Council, and what they need is data to find out the temperature changes in the water. What's causing those algae blooms? Um, and we're living in a day and age where everything's autonomous. So, focus back on 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 buildings and building inspections. I mean, it's gotten to the point to where a $500 drone. And the right software and the education how to do it, you can map those buildings. You can build 3D models with those buildings. So the cost, uh, it's really not cost prohibitive anymore. Now our systems, the cost is really in the camera and the sensor. So they make gas sensors, they make LiDAR with lasers, uh, infrared. So our infrared sensors are is basically um, will allow you to find water leaks and penetration through the roof membrane. Um, basically what happens is on a low slope roof and it's very effective in southern states um, the sun beats down on the roof all day and 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 heats that surface of that roof well if there's any water or any leaks or any penetrations in that roof that water's getting heated up as well and water has a high heat capacity so as soon as the sun begins to set the roofing surface that material cools very quickly but the water with that high heat capacity stays warm for, for many, many hours into the night. So what we can do is, is before in the past, you would have to, they, they did this and it was very expensive. And I'm a manned pilot as well. Um, I, 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 you know, aviation is a, a big background of everyone in, in our office, but you used to fly with a handheld, hang a handheld out the window of a Cessna and you could aim it. Because really to get a good report, if someone tries to do a large low slope roof with a handheld, yeah, I'd send them away and have someone that does it with a drone service do it because you really need to be at 90 degrees, even when doing walls, 90 degrees straight on, 90 degrees, it's just for the sensitivity to analyze uh, the radiation. Because um, any, anything, uh, you know, uh, above absolute zero is actually emitting radiation and those detectors will pick that up. So what happens is the water emits that heat and the infrared sensor finds it. So it, it, and you'll see the same thing with missing insulation through walls uh, and even steep slope roofs. So uh, it's just something to keep in your uh, your mind. I mean, for, for less than a thousand bucks, you can go out and have an aerial infrared scan done of a, of a, of a 25, 30,000 square foot building. And, uh, and basically that data is invaluable. One of the things that we do, we found very lucrative is, is um, roofing contractors, obviously the manufacturers, whether you're putting on a coating, a TPO, a mod bit, 
um, they offer warranties. So we're finding a lot of roofing contractors, especially ones that are doing coatings, uh, if you can go out and find out that your roof's dry, you're a candidate for a coating, and now you can extend your roof out for another 10, 15, 20-year warranty. So we find that a lot of roofing contractors are doing this to cover their butts, to say, hey, we did an IR scan, verified that this was dry, and, and, and we're ready to, um, for you guys to issue the warranty for that coating we're going to put on, and then the manufacturer most likely will do it. Um, but it's a great way to uh, do non-destructive testing as well. So you're not up on your roof, punching and doing cores to try to find a leak, which in the end could maybe actually cause more leaks. So it's a non-destructive way and, and it allows you to have valuable information that you can submit with your claims and, and, and with, uh, with anything that I guess you're gonna hand off to appraisers or insurance companies. Yeah, so today's not as much about claims, but it is about the data you can have that's going to give uh, your agent more leverage. And that's what it's all about, right? The information is the most important thing. And, and when it comes to underwriters, so getting in the head of underwriters, what they don't know is always a worst case scenario. So uh, providing information that's better than the worst possible case is going to be uh, a benefit to the association, provide more leverage uh, to the agency as they start to go out to market, if they're utilizing and asking for that information uh, on your behalf. Um, so let's talk a little bit about that timeline a little bit further. So one of the toughest things with boards is that you have to plan out your meetings, a lot of attorneys believe that insurance, uh, maybe you have to have a two-week notice for that discussion and that decision. I don't profess to have an opinion on that, uh, but that can be very prohibitive. And the fact that uh, wind quotes, for the most part, uh, probably 99% of the time, are only good for 30 days. The earliest you can receive uh, the first quotes are going to be on that 30-day mark. So, you know, that comes into our office. That means we have to aggregate it then uh, hopefully maybe we've set a meeting beforehand or maybe we email it. Uh, but that means that now the board has to figure out how they're going to come together, possibly vote on something, make a decision, and uh, how much time are they really going to have and be stressed out. Because once you fall into this area, you know, you're going to have a lot of upset people if they don't have options. And you don't have a lot of time to have options once you're in that window. So uh, by statute, with the mitigators, carriers, uh, they're supposed to have the renewal 45 days from the actual renewal date, if they're offering renewal, or if they're offering a, a non-renewal, it has to be known by 45 days. 30 days, uh, that 29, 30 days, uh, we try to have ours out to at least a manager, maybe somebody on the board, or the whole board if they really want it, um, at that 30-day mark, unless you have a super popular date, 1-1, you know, 10-1, 7-1 to some degree, there's a lot of renewal centralized around those quarterly annual dates, and, uh, and that can slow the process down because there's so many happening at the same time. Or if there was just a hurricane and it causes a mess of things, that's a re another reason to get everything out of hurricane season. Um, but you'll see the 30-day mark, 25-day mark, things are coming into us. Now is the time to make the carriers compete against each other because your best alternative is what you have as leverage against another carrier. They know you don't have any option other than citizens. You know, what are you going to do to be able to push that around? Or what is an agent going to do? Um, and then we want to be able to meet with the board, discuss, and, uh, and not get anywhere into this 15-day mark um, if we can help it. Or at least if we are, it's, it's minor changes, not significant changes or surprises. So that is just the renewal timeline, whether there's one or a million agents involved. This is kind of a graphic of three agents being involved 
in a renewal process. And uh, we'll start kind of from the left across. So, uh, you know, I made funny names. Condo King Insurance Agency, uh, they're what they call the incumbent. They're the current agent. Uh, a manager calls me and says, the board would really like to see three agents come and compete on this this year. I say, okay, we could do that, but we're within that 90-day mark, that 80-day mark. Uh, there's very little we're going to be able to do because while we have a few markets that the other agent doesn't have, uh, for the most part, they've locked up the marketplace with whatever their submission may be, whatever their plan may be uh, to bring that to the finish line and, and have a policy in place. So we have Condo King Insurance Agency. He has access with his contracts, his relationships with three admitted carriers, uh, carrier A, carrier B, carrier C. He also has an excess and surplus line, surplus line specialty broker involved, and that specialty broker has gone to excess and surplus line carrier Q, carrier S, carrier X. I come in, he went there 90 days. I went in at 80 days because I was asked to, uh, and I went to uh, these carriers because I also have access to them, and then I also went to the NS carriers. I was blocked at all of those places. Now, I did have a few markets which maybe aren't preferred markets that they didn't have access to, maybe just because we're a little bit bigger. And so maybe we, we can bring options from there. More than likely, those aren't going to be the best options. They're a little smaller, maybe fringe. And sure, I can try to bring that. And they're going to say, well, bring us something apples to apples. I'm going to say, well, what if that's not what you need? What if that doesn't actually cover the association's risks? I want to take a look at the annualized cost of risk, and I want to minimize that. I don't want to copy something that might be wrong, that might be poor, it's going to cause surprises. So that's probably not what you're going to see from me. I'm going to see a solution that's probably going to be better. It may be more expensive. Uh, really depends on the association. Some of these markets may be more competitive. They may not. And then now we have poor Bobby Richards agency. Uh, he came in similar to time that I did, uh, but he didn't have access to some of these extra carriers. He went to another access and surplus lines, and maybe they had one market. Maybe they can offer coverage, maybe not. So this is what people say, well, I'm blocked in the marketplace or I'm blocked by another agent. Is that what the board wants to see and do? Or is that maybe because they don't quite have the understanding of how this is going to work and a comprehensive process where the, um, where the competition happens at the carrier level as opposed to having a bunch of agents bring in who knows what um, to, the, to the table? Yeah. I think too, Trevor, you, um, I'm a public adjuster, so I handle it once the policy has already been issued on the claim side. But that first condo king insurance agent, if they bid it out at 5% with no law and ordinance, a total bad package, bad on the claim side, mm -hmm. you're still blocked from going in and getting the right coverage from the right carrier. Exactly. That's like the big key. Right. And that's, that's the biggest thing with apples to apples, too. We're blocked from being able to negotiate it so that it actually protects the association and it's a real strategy, possibly, uh, but we're also not going to, the ones we may have available, we don't want to use that plan either. We want to really protect the association. So that's where it comes into what is the alternative of this? The alternative is sitting down with these three agents outside of the renewal process, interviewing them, asking them to put together a plan for the association. And once you have interviewed them, you understand what they want to do, give them the leeway to do that and bring that to the association. Now, are you going to have all the work, all the quotes uh, far enough in advance where you can make radical changes? 
Not necessarily, because you're gonna have that 30 day mark. But with references, creating a specific plan uh, of risk management, you're gonna choose the best agent, just like you would choose the best real estate agent to go out and, and look for homes for you, the best attorney. Uh, you're gonna choose the one who's most qualified and allow them to go out to the marketplace for you with the terms that you want. So all the carriers have the, the same terms. Um, and how can you control that? The board always has a control of this through what's called uh, an agent record letter. A lot of people think that's a dirty word. It's only dirty because I think it's misrepresented by a lot of agents, which is unfortunate. The reality is if you understand how this tier system works, the power is in the, is in the board's hands, but they need to understand the blocking processes and uh, that the board controls who is going to go out on their behalf and who's ultimately gonna handle their claims. And this puts the power back in the board's hands. And what does that process look like once you've chosen an agent of record? Um, insurance agency with signed AOR. Now this agency, if they have broad market access, they have great relationships, and they understand what that plan is gonna be and how it's gonna to fit together, is gonna to go to all the carriers on the association's behalf, just like that other chart you saw, and make sure that it's the most competitive pricing in terms, bringing the most options. So now we're kinda of back to this map. It's the same thing as what we saw here, as opposed to the cluttered mess where everybody's um, blocking each other. And the only result of this can be the lowest price. Can't be the best terms, can't be the best carrier. The only result is who went there first and who had the lowest price which is not gonna be in the benefit of the association. Interview your agents, talk to them about what their plan is, choose your agent with intent, and allow them to bring, uh, bring their force through the submission process, uh, negotiation, and, uh, and then the question is, well, how do you know that that was the best from all the carriers? How, what, do you, what is the output of that negotiation process other than maybe a one-page proposal we saw? You know, from us, you see a large, big proposal. It kind of drives people crazy. I go through it every year. But the number one thing you're looking for is a marketing summary. Who did they go to? What were the responses? Um, and this was before we had two hurricanes, and this is a very large association. So there's a lot of detail on this. But these are some of the items you're going to want to see in here. You're going to want to know, okay, we went to ACA. Great. They're an A-rated carrier, A-rated carrier. They're admitted. Um, but it's not in their appetite. They're a very picky carrier uh, because this property was right on the coast. It was built in the late or early 80s. So they're going to say not an appetite. It's not a great response that we want to hear. We want to know specifically why. Um, and we'll start to see that. Uh, another Ace Westchester for this one, they modeled it through their program and their reinsurance. And, uh, and it was too expensive compared to some of the other options that were coming in. And you'll start to see better options in here, start to see what the responses are start to see some of the comparison. You'll see a more detailed comparison on this, but you wanna see an exhaustive list of the agent going out to the marketplace, providing multiple options, whether it's different pricing, different terms, um, or they couldn't offer for certain reasons. This is a more detailed comparison summary. So once you get that 30 or 40 that are real players for that type of property, uh, you start to narrow that down into a smaller list like you saw, which was you know, about 15 carriers. And then now we get down to maybe four carriers. Uh, this is where more carriers were a little more uh, open to, to providing options. Maybe it's only two or three nowadays uh, for at least this year. And now you're gonna see a comparison. 
here's the total insurable value, which may be different because certain carriers can't cover certain items. Um, are they backed by the Florida Guarantee Fund? So are they admitted or not? That's a factor in this process. Uh, are they going to include boiler and machinery, which is equipment breakdown? And what are the limits? Or is there going to be a separate cost for it? And so you see, when we, talk on, when we start talking about apples to apples, there's no such thing. Every carrier is different. Um, they're going to have different terms, different financial ratings, um, different deductibles. And there's a lot of pieces that go in. So really understanding that the agent needs to be the one that's aggregating this, providing it to you in detail. Um, and advising you on it, being your partner, shoulder to shoulder, is going to make a big difference as opposed to three or four agents just trying to bring the cheapest item, which, you know, who knows what the details are going to be in each one of those contracts. Um, okay, so how are we doing on time here? Um, so that is the biggest part of from an annualized basis, that, that insurance renewal uh, that happens once a year. What are some other kind of misconceptions, questions, or big questions that you receive from your boards about this process? Or what are the questions when they say, we need three agents? Do you feel like you have some ammunition to kind of talk to them about, we don't need three agents to go out to market, we need three agents to possibly interview? Is there any, how would you explain that compared to maybe what I presented? Is there any questions, challenges? What's a common problem you guys face? One of the problems that we face frequently and is a real issue in trying to coach the boards on is that they will have somebody in the community, just like they, there, there's always somebody who knows bookkeeping and accounting, there's always somebody who dabbled in law, there's always somebody who did whatever it is, and there's mm -hmm. always somebody who's a retired insurance somebody or other, or who knows somebody in insurance who comes up at about the 45 day mark and tells everybody your broker is no good even though they've done a good job the last 15 years and you need to sign an agent of record so that we can get rid of that bad person and get you a new person but you're already within that 45 day window mm -hmm. and so the challenge for us is to coach the board not to go with all these <clears throat> the neighbor said yeah. people that are trying to tell their friends on the board how they should run their association instead of listening to the manager or listening to the current professionals in this market so that would be one of the questions that, that we would get is how, how do you forestall that choice to do an agent of record when really your back is up against the wall on getting mm -hmm. this stuff done one and the other thing is how do we explain to our boards about why they're not able to get apples to apples i mean it's 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 good for us to know some of this stuff but how do we explain it to them in layman's terms that you're never going to get golden delicious apples and golden delicious apples. Right. You might get crab apples and golden delicious apples, yeah. but they're not going to be the same. And people just don't don't want to digest that because they can go to the landscaper and get the same. Right. The biggest part of that is I try to provide as much information that you can forward 
and I will do that. So I'm going to consolidate some of this so it's a little easier, specifically addressing that issue. Um, and, and the biggest answer might be we have a process for choosing our advisors and you know we'd love to go through that process uh, if you have somebody who you think might be a good fit or an alternative but we have to start that at the 120 day mark not the 45 day mark um, and it's not to say that you can't make changes that close but understanding where we are right now they're they're well involved in the process we're happy with how they handled claims and here's here's some proof on why we want to see what they're going to bring to the table before we're going to entertain or even interview anybody else with the possibility of changing agent of record. So I think that's the biggest part is the lead time, what goes into how all this is going to fit together, and then the, the process is not the same as a lawn contractor. You know, there's a lot of it already in motion and we're very happy with where we are. That could change in the next 15 days or 30 days, 15, 25 days if they don't bring quotes to us by then uh, or, or communicate with us effectively. But at that 45-day mark can be sort of a quiet period if you're happy, if you think they're great at what they do. If you're not sure, then you may want to, you know, talk to other agents to at least interview them. But it's not the right time to just start AOR and things because most of that is is almost set in stone at that point um, to some degree. Yeah. Another thing to point out to your client is that within that window, the the neighbor's nephew is going to be severely hamstrung in in his attempts to find good coverage at a good price because of the uh, the block that's already been you know that you you've already gone in and started that process and he won't be able to access those markets. Right. Let them know that it wouldn't be fair to him at this point to let him in on the process, but maybe consider him as one of the, you know, interview him for next year, something like that. Trevor, I think that the biggest disappointment that my board members have found is not, not you, but other agents will show up at that witching hour at the last minute. Well, I checked the market, here's to pick A or B. And that's what we get. Point, yeah. That's what we get. And, and that's very disappointing. I don't know why these two were chosen. You weren't giving any any um, information on what you could have done 45 days in advance to get a better rate. Nobody follows up later and says, boy, if you had quit, if you had replaced your roots last year, we could have got you a better rate. You know, nobody tells you this information before or after the fact. And, um, and I, I like I said, I think that's the failure of most of the agents out there that they're so busy. They have so many accounts, it's all they can do just to get the reviews to you. Yeah. You know, and we understand that as being just being busy. Right. But, um, I think it's a priority, too. I think being busy can be an excuse. You know, they could always hire more people, and, you know, if you hear that from me, you can slap me. Uh, I won't ever tell you that I'm too busy. Um, but I did want to address one thing on that. I was meeting with the townhome community last night uh, in my office um, from, I don't know, till 7 o'clock, and... Um, they had had, I asked them, you know, just to confirm, when was the last time you had the roofs replaced? They said, well, State Farm replaced them for us in 2006. I said, okay, 2005, 2006. I said, okay, so the roofs are 12 to 13 years old. We got a great renewal this year, even though they had some claims. It was a reduction. It's a frame uh, community. But I said, how, what is your plan and how are you reserving for the next three years? Because once that roof gets over 10 years, 
the carriers start to get very wary about that. And I'm not saying that a roof can't last longer than that, but the carriers are going to start to need to see proof why that roof is a good roof, or at the very least, you need to be reserving for it. How many times do we have associations that aren't reserving for this, and then all of a sudden now you have a huge assessment? And they don't want to hear it. They, they're literally arguing with me, oh, these are great roofs. I'm not disagreeing with you. I think they're great roofs. But I want you to be prepared for when I don't have the ability to negotiate from a strong position because you have old roofs. But I've never had an agent ask me for a budget or a yeah. You know, just say, to show that we are actually doing it. And, and you're right, if, if we need the engineering study to say that these roofs are sound, right. you need to be advised that, boy, if you do this, you're going to save $5,000 for $100,000. Yeah, and, and you might have uh, unconventional roofs that a standard mitigation report isn't going to properly explain. And then you may have to pay extra for an engineer, but it's going to cost you and save you and be able to prove the fact that this is a good roof. And how, how often should a wind mitigation be done for it to be valid? So this is, I got a lot of questions on this too. So on the personal line side, they expire after five years. So if you had a master one done in 2011 or 2012, and now your homeowners are saying, I can't use this, we need to get a new master mitigation report. Well, not exactly because the master on the commercial side, they don't expire. So unless you've had a change in the protection of that type of roof, it may not be worth it to spend $1,200, $1,500 for a new mitigation report. The individuals may have to buy their own at $7,500, something like that. Uh, yeah. on, the one thing that I find on, just let's go with our one thing that a lot of my larger condos have been facing is the frustration. One about what their premiums are, but more so never meeting their deductibles and historicals. They look back saying, okay, well, we have all this damage, and in this place, I believe they replaced like 22 AC units. And, you know, each building carries its own deductible. They never met their deductibles. Now, thank God that they were reserved well enough that they didn't have to assess the associations. But that's one thing you sit down when you're with the associations. And they're basically saying, you know, we're spending all this money, but we're really not getting anything. So this is basically just throwing our money out. And it's very hard to get them to understand the logic. Does that make sense? Yeah. The, the, the things that are going to be under the deductible that aren't catastrophic, that can be annoying to deal with and are still can add up to be a, a significant cost, are also things that probably could have been protected. You know, the, the AC units, for example. If it was inspected and strapped, would those have survived if they had brand new strapping, do you think, through this hurricane? They, most of them were, and that's the thing. They still blew over. Really? Even the new ones? Yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, and, and that's a big part of how the carriers are viewing it. I have associations with a 1% deductible. Is that still going to cover the ACs? Probably not. Um, but you're starting to see wind buy-downs. You're starting to see more favorable terms. Um, and planning for the annualized cost of risk by saying our insurance item, we're budgeting for that, but what we're self-insuring for, which is items we can't buy insurance for or are underneath the deductible, uh, are items that should be conservatively added into the to the budget. Well, especially with the Florida statute saying, okay, well, you're responsible for XXX during the named storm. But see, that's what they want. They want people... Keep sliding. They basically do want you guys to compete to see what they can do better in premiums and deductibles. 
They want so, the carriers to compete. Well, right. look at the broker more so. We know what you're saying. But the boards want to see three individuals go out into that market and bring down the result. So that's a big part of today, why we can help communities have better programs that are actually going to cover them when they need it compared to the cheapest program because they went to three agents. So uh, I want to provide you with the tools that that's an easier conversation and, and trying to put together something that consolidates this so that you can forward it in an email. When you get that request to say, I want to talk to three agents this year. Well, okay, let me give you some information on why that may not be in the best interest of the association or you as an individual, you know. So. so Trevor, I have another question. And I know every manager in here has had the same sort of problem. We had an insurance claim with the hurricane. Mm -hmm. How do we tell our boards that yes, your broker has been proactive on your stuff, but the broker's hands are tied past this point. This is what you should expect from your brokerage, and this is what, where the handoff is to the underwriting company. Yeah, the, the different levels between the agent, the outside adjuster, the third party adjuster, and then the inside adjuster, and then the possibility of having a public adjuster that's an advocate for the association or your attorneys involved. Um, is very case by case, to be honest with you. You know, the biggest thing you don't want to do is an assignment of benefits. You don't want to go crazy. You don't want to get things going too early before you know the facts. That's the number one thing. And there is going to be a point where um, an advocate as your agent may, there, there may be a threshold that that's as far as they can go in the process. And now it's going to take the legal and engineering expertise of either a consolidated effort like a, an adjuster or and maybe the attorney specializes in that. I don't know, it could be specific to the association. But the biggest thing I say is, let's get all the information before we make any rash decisions and then bring in the professionals as they're needed. So that's a tough one though. Seth, did you have something? Yes, yeah, so did I understand this slide correctly under the renewal negotiation that we have all these underwriters or insurers and everyone's kind of a partner this process, and I kind of had the impression that you were saying they're all communicating with each other. I mean, did I hear that right? Or no, so, okay, so... The, these arrows here are saying that the agent who put together the submission is going one-to-one -one with Heritage. And Heritage is going to look at the submission and they may possibly provide back a quote or a response. That's what that other graph was. And and we're going to be doing the same, or that agent is going to be doing the same thing with each one of these carriers on a one-to-one -one basis. These carriers aren't going to know what each other are doing, but all those quotes, all those proposals, all those initial options are being aggregated by the agent. And that agent is going to be utilizing each one of those options against one another, against the other carriers, to make sure, A, that the terms are at least as good or better, and that the pricing can be brought down. So, you know, if, I, if I'm going to Tower Hill, if I go to this carrier and they, they say it's gonna be $100,000 at 2% deductible and all these other great terms, and then Heritage comes back and says, well, it's gonna be $90,000 at 2% deductible and we're admitted and we have a few other bells and whistles. You know, and we go back to Tower Hill and say, well, Heritage could do this, 
um, you know, can you do better than that? And that's going to happen across the board with each one of these only by the agent. And the only way you can know when it gets to true bottom dollar is when you see the marketing summary where this is the best and final of American Coastal. This is as far as they were willing to go on this risk. This is best and final of Lexington. So it's a two-way communication uh, between the agent and the carriers or maybe a broker that's involved. I know that term kind of confuses things because there's another level of specialty brokers. Um, but that's where the communication happens. And if you have another agent involved, there's a disconnect and you can't have the same level of competition. You can't know that the terms are gonna be the same and uh, you're not gonna have the coverages in place. You're only gonna know what the price is. And you're gonna be blocking each other, which may be incorrect. What the insurer will get. What do you think? What do you think, in your opinion, is the is the strongest arguments by the by the insurer to raise the amount of that claim? The by the insurer, you mean the carrier, the one who's actually the insur Oh, the one, the insured. Okay, we call them the insured. So you're talking about an association. Association disputing the amount that you are giving for a claim. What do you think is the strongest uh, arguments to change your mind? Yeah, so, so from a claims perspective, negotiating on the claim maybe, um, we want data, right? It's the same thing. So that's where an engineer, a contractor, um, photos are going to provide the details that are going to help us be the advocate for the association to fight the carrier. That's what our job is too. So. That's why I always say this going out to market process, that's, that's a portion of, of what goes into reducing the cost of risk, but it's making sure the claims are paid out, being an advocate, and, um, and data is gonna be the biggest benefit to that. And there's gonna be levels of that, just like I said. So it's gonna start with a layman board member or maybe a manager and some photos. And then if the carrier is not persuaded by that and who we are, Maybe we need a contractor. Maybe we need an engineer. Maybe we need an attorney. Maybe we need a public adjuster. So you're climbing that ladder depending on the level of dispute, what it is about, how detailed or confusing it might be. I think the conventional wisdom among attorneys is that if there's truly a disputed claim, the advice is don't involve any attorneys until you get a rejection letter from the insurer and then the only way to get them off that mark is to sue them in many instances. And that's just kind of what the... We haven't quite seen that. If there's enough data, I mean, you can overturn that. Because the worst thing that most of these carriers want to do is get into a legal battle. They know that they're not going to be seen favorably. Uh, they're going to lose as, you know, big, bad insurance company. So if there's data there um, and there's timeline that you can show proof they don't want to do that i'm not saying it never happens but how unfavorable does it make property look if they're awarded a big payout as far as we know so that's part of the submission process right that claims data that loss information that's where it's i'm always hesitant to make sure you're not jumping the gun with who you're getting involved as far as a um maybe not the most reputable public adjuster who's taking it over as opposed to advising first and saying, you know, we're gonna, 
we're going to move forward with uh, a graduated plan as opposed to just take it, sue them, and then who knows how long it's going to be tied up, two, three years. That could definitely make a big difference. Now, an association who did their best to maintain their property, replace their roofs, and the unforeseen happened and there's a million-dollar payout, well, that's not necessarily going to be a scarlet letter for the next three, four years. Yes, claims will follow an association for at least four years for renewals, um, but if it was warranted, the association did their best and they weren't negligent in repair, replacement, it's not going to be seen as, as a big negative or a big mark that's going to necessarily hurt our position. Everybody else see that information. That their, their claim was paid. Is it somehow? Oh, yeah. No, no, we, it, it has to, it's part of the submission process. Just like the mitigation reports, just like the schedule of values, that's going to be a big part of that. All that has to be disclosed, what's happened in the last four years. Yes. Um, sometimes in more detail than others, but yeah. Sure. What is a claim officially closed? In other words, after Matthew and after Irma, we found a lot of latent damage mm. that showed up months after we thought we had solved the major issues. Yeah. Mold, for instance, uh, just a variety of things, gutters down that we didn't notice were ripped off. How, how does that process work? They, can they submit at a later date? They can. Yeah. Is there, is there a time limit on that? Well, you definitely want to be providing information. As soon as you know there's damage, let your agent know. Let it be inspected by, or at least cleaned up, protecting the property. Um, if it's discovered later, even after the claim's been paid and, and the first letters have been closeout letters, doesn't mean that you can't go back and access that again. It's not, oh, you know, that, that we can never go there again. It's just be reasonable with the timelines um, and don't, don't drag your feet. The longer, the, the more you're hurting your case, the, letter, the longer you let that run out. Okay, um, was there anything that you guys wanted to kind of go into in any more detail? Something that I, excuse me, go ahead. One more on claims. When you have a claim, whether it's a personal injury action or a subrogation action, and the suddenly received that demand for policy limits under 627, okay. level we don't necessarily immediately answer those requests we want the we don't want the uh, carrier the insurer to be in a prejudiced position because they're the one ultimately who may have to pay that claim so we want to make sure they're going to be able to fight on behalf of the association if you know it's not deemed that that necessarily needs to be as big of a payout as being alleged on the liability side you're talking about a slip and fall or an accident a bodily injury property damage Right, and subrogation claims. So you want the insurer to handle those? We want them to at least know about it and be prepared to make their response. And part of that could also be substituting, you know, having the um, association's attorney involved because they already know a lot about it. Um, and, you know, they may be the one fighting the case as opposed to the um, carrier's attorney. Bonnie. 
I wanted to bring up the topic of protection from windborne debris. Um, you mentioned the Florida Building Code. And um, on these tables that I handed out, the very last entry, protection from windborne debris. When I appraise one of your properties, my assumption is it just got blown down and has to be completely reconstructed from the ground up. Uh, hopefully that uh, none of my work will ever come into play, but it would have to be built to code and that includes either hurricane shutters or impact resistant glass. And the code has changed several times, 2004, amended 2007, uh, and it's we've just come out with the sixth edition and, uh, and they, the missile testing has changed and all of that. My point is, when I do an appraisal of the, your client's property, I have to include that as a line item in the reconstruction cost, but I can separate it out. If they don't have any shutters and their glass is not impact resistant, I can separate that out as an ordinance and law issue and also provide the replacement cost of the existing building, at least as it um, applies to just that one component of the uh, building code requirement. And uh, so on that note, uh, because that's really difficult information to gather, any of you that are, uh, that your associations are purchasing shutters, uh, if you can share that information with me, that's gonna help me give you a much more realistic, uh, real world uh, cost estimate in the appraisal. Um, and, and I've sent out a couple of requests for that. Um, all of a sudden, everyone thinks shutters is a great idea. And so, uh, yes, that, that's, I, thanks. Did everybody sign the sign and sheet with the CAM license number and all of that? Do we know where that is? Is that in right there? Okay. Um, I had a little bit on contractual liability I always hit on. You know, I didn't cover a lot of the same terms that I usually go into. You know, what are the things you're looking for as far as endorsements go? Really wanted to hit on what does that process look like? Because that's really behind the curtain, right? I mean, how much of that do you guys see or, or get a chance to be exposed to? And that was something a little different I wanted to have this focused on. Um, but that talks about all these little things you might see in policies uh, that you'll hear me talk about in other places, and I may put something out with those regards. Um, contractual liability, I always say you have an opportunity to negotiate uh, when, you when you sign a contract. So that's with your vendors. When you receive their terms, you want to have your attorney involved, but you also want to see their certificate of insurance. That's another area, just like the price, just like the scope of work, that you want to have uh, the best interest of the association involved. So when you're receiving these certificates, send them to me. Uh, you don't pay me an hourly rate. I will look at them. I'll help you on, uh, on the association's behalf. This is part of the negotiation process with those individual carriers. Um, this is a sample addendum you may want to add that has insurance requirements, general liability, at least a million dollar occurrence, two million aggregate, auto liability, workers comp, uh, umbrella, um, you're, you, and then you may want to see other things like waivers of subrogation, additional insured, um, but send that over to me. That's always open for negotiation. We're running a little bit late, so um, if there's not any questions, any more questions, no, we got Seth. With riders, I see, I get a lot of situations, and this ties into most support areas, where somebody wants to keep a dog, especially 
a bigger dog as an emotional support animal. And, and the association is often surprised, uh, and, and I just had one that been involved a Rottweiler, and, and the association is often surprised that they cannot pull that your Rottweiler is going to make our insurance go up and use that provision as them saying, the reason we can't approve that emotional support animal is because that is, an un that is not a reasonable accommodation. We only have to give you a reasonable accommodation and we think if we see an if allowing you this dog increases our insurance premium, and that that permission is only is in most declarations. The unit owner can't do anything to, to increase insurance premiums, but it's hard to ever And it's hard to prove that I've noticed the insurers, right, in association policies have nothing to say about that. They really don't right now. Until until we start to see some you know, dog bites become more frequent by people who say they're emotional support animals. It's not a big question. It's not a part of the submission process. Uh, it's not a part of those um, questionnaires. It's very minimal. Now, once you have a claim, yeah, that association is going to have a problem for the next three, four years because now it goes on the loss runs, even though it wasn't, you know, the association's dog. But it could possibly go back to the association either on the general liability or the directors and officers insurance. So people ask me that or want me to kind of fight their fight. And while I agree with them, there's not things that I can provide that are true facts that would support the fact that it would just go up at next year's renewal or that it would hurt the submission or negotiation process. I can't say for sure if you had a claim where a Rottweiler ripped off a little boy's face and if the association had a claim that you can't safely say that your rates are going to go up. No, no, I can safely say that, yes, for next year. But I can't say that it's going to, just because this dog is here, it's going to cause an immediate increase to your insurance today. You can't turn down emotional support. So, that's what you want out of On the same subject, so, so what I'm hearing you say and what I'm hearing Seth say sound the same on the surface, but they really don't sound the same if you start thinking about it, because when Sonia talked to us all about animals mm -hmm. several months ago, one of the things that she stressed was that if, if an animal is designated as emotional support or a service animal or whatever, a therapy animal, that you can't charge them a pet deposit, you can't put any pet restrictions, they're not a pet. Right. As far as the state of Florida is concerned, they are not a pet. So the question, Seth's question revisited might be, how can the insurance company ding the association for a Rottweiler claim if that Rottweiler by its designation is technically not a pet? It's a piece of because it's still a cause of loss on property that was brought there uh, that happened on site. So it's still a claim. It doesn't matter if that was a Rottweiler or it was a wood chipper. It doesn't matter exactly what it is. As long as it was, you know, as long as it was something significant and it ends up on the loss rounds, even if it's what they call, uh, you know, something that's very rare, some sort of black swan event or it's never going to happen again, part of that process. And if it's big enough, it could impact and it will impact future renewal.
So, and you might have animal exclusions. Animal doesn't matter if it's a pet. You could have an animal exclusion. And now, I can't get you a policy that has any coverage for any animal, whether regardless of what they are, if they cause some sort of loss oh. and it's brought back on the association. Wow. Yeah. Well, that happens with a lot of personal lines policies. We don't see that right now on associations. We do see uh, assault and battery exclusions from time to time. You have a fight on property, the association gets sued. Uh, now I don't have the leverage to negotiate an insurance, a general liability insurance policy that includes assault and battery, which is normally included. It's not an excluded uh, cause of loss on a general liability policy. But that exclusion doesn't exclude your duties of defense. No. Not usually. And that could be a big. Right. Yeah, it's true. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. I hope the food is good. Thanks for listening. If you could do us a huge favor and rate and subscribe, you can do it right in your iTunes app. Please shoot us an email if you have questions or topics, anything that we could help you with. Campcontact at gmail.com. C-A-A-M-P contact at gmail.com. Thanks, and we'll catch up with you next week.